All right, cool. Three people are there. Let's try that again. If you're there, say I'm there. There we go. Awesome. Let's go. Let's dig right in. Amos chapter 5. We left off in verse number 16. So beginning in verse number 16, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the Lord, there is wailing in all the plazas, in all the streets they say, alas, alas. They also call the farmer to mourning and professional mourners to lamentation. Let me explain that real fast. Failure to honor the dead, um, what was considered to be a, a horrible offense to the people of Israel. And so when someone would die and they would hold a funeral, then they would make sure that there was lots of weeping and wailing that occurred at those funerals. So much so that there was actually an industry that existed where you could hire people to come to a funeral so that they could cry and weep on memory of the one that has passed. And so Amos is painting a picture right here, and he's saying that there will be so many funerals when God comes to exercise his judgment. There's going to be so many funerals that are happening that there's not going to be enough professional mourners to, to be hired to go and to weep and to wail. So therefore, they're going to have to get farmers and pull them from the field so that they could cry on behalf of the dead. And, and, and so he's saying, uh, they also call farmers to mourning and professional mourners to lamentation. And in all the vineyards, there is wailing because I will pass through the midst of you, says the Lord. Amos is still mourning over the coming destruction of the nation of Israel. In fact, in this next section that begins really in verse number 18 and carries all the way through chapter 6, Amos pr pronounces a series of woe statements. He gives strong warnings to, to four different types of individuals. This morning we're going to look at the first type of people that's found here in chapter 5. And that is the warning that goes out to the ignorant. And then the next time, I, I, when I pick up in Amos, when we get to chapter 6, there's three more warning statements to three different types of individuals that are identified in chapter 6. Verses 1 and 2, there's a warning to the indifferent. Verses 3 through 7, there's a warning to the indulgent. And, and verses 8 through 14, you'll find the warning to the impudent. So although the circumstances are different, we tend to have the same type of people in churches today. And so I'm wondering as we work through these woe statements, if you can for yourselves identify them in the church today or maybe even have to make the confession that you are one of them in the church today. So this morning we're going to start with the first warning statement. And that is uh, the warning to the ignorant, beginning of verse number 18. It says, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. And when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or goes home, leans his hand against a wall, and a snake bites him, will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom, with no brightness in it? Verse 21, I hate... I reject your festivals. 
nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at your peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, O house of Israel? You also carried along Sikath, your king, and Kion, your images, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. I want to narrow in at the beginning here on this particular phrase that Amos is referring to, and that phrase is uh, the day of the Lord. And so the day of the Lord, that phrase, when it's used here in in this context, uh, Amos is referring to the imminent destruction that's going to fall upon the people by the hands of the Assyrian Empire. But also in Scripture, the day of the Lord is used uh, to to point to the future day when God's judgment will, will come down upon all of creation. The day of the Lord is ultimately the answer to our prayer, thy kingdom come. And so it's described in great detail what that day is going to look like when you read through uh, Revelation chapters 6 through chapter 20. And in fact, there are many passages in Scripture that have been written by the prophets that give us an idea or an understanding or insight as to what the day of the Lord will actually look or what will be involved in that day. I want to read to you a passage real quick, and this comes from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 13, he says, in the beginning of verse number 6, he says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pain and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and and burning anger, to make the land a desolation. And he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the star of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. The people that Amos is addressing here in chapter 5, they had a tendency to, to view the day of the Lord as a time of great deliverance for themselves and a time when God would bring down justice or judgment to their enemies. And so what's happening here is that Amos uses that term, that phrase, the day of the Lord, uh, so as to be rich in irony. He's saying like you're looking and longing and, and ready to celebrate something that's going to happen, but you don't even know what you're celebrating. You don't even know what's going to happen as a result of God bringing his judgment 
which means that good theology can lead us to genuine hope, whereas bad theology can instill with us a, a sense of false hope. And, and so because these hypocrites were sure that God would spare Israel and exercise or punish their enemies, that, that's why they were longing for the day of the Lord not realizing that when the day of the Lord arrived, it would bring judgment upon not just its enemies, but judgment upon them themselves. Amos reminds them that the day of the Lord would be a day of darkness. Go back to verse number 18. He says, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. Then he says, as when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or goes home, leads his hand against the wall, and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom, with no brightness in it? God has warned them that he is about to, to pass through their midst, carrying out and exercising his judgment. He says he's going to pass through them. Look at verse number 17. He says, in all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Notice that God's going to pass through them. God's not going to pass over them like, like he did when they were in Egypt. This time that God was going to come and he was going to bring judgment to his own people. And so what Israel experienced at the hands of the Assyrians was a small sampling of what's going to happen at end time events. The, the time when the whole world will experience the day of the Lord. In fact, in verse number 19, Amos reveals that no one can escape the wrath of God. There's no place that, that one can hide to, to escape God's wrath is that they were eagerly expecting the day of the Lord without realizing what that day was actually going to bring unto themselves. They're, they're like some believers today who so desperately want Jesus to come back so as they could escape a terrible circumstance in their life or so that God can get their enemies in that return. Instead of desperately longing for Jesus to return because of, of our, our, our love and, and, our, and our anticipation of his arrival. Listen to, to what Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 4. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning of verse 6, Paul says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will, will award me on that day. And not only to me, then he says, but also to all who have loved his appearing. It's trying to have the right mindset to, to love and to long for the appearing of our Lord so that he could exercise his per perfect justice once and for all. 
And that's the mindset that we should have as, as believers, that we should have great longing and anticipation for Jesus Christ to return. But, but they forgot what many of us forget, that Christ's return means both judgment and blessing. They both are a part of the equation for Jesus to return. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says in verse number 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. So we'll all have to stand and give account uh, of our lives before the Lord. And so we should long and love to, to, to wait for his return. And that longing and that loving should condition with us the, the proper mindset and how we're to live this life that we're in so that we can stand before the King of Kings and give an account for who we are and what we've done as we've been waiting and longing for his arrival. Look, Amos looks around and notice next that he begins to point out the sins of the people the sins of the people that have made them totally unprepared for the day of the Lord. The structure of this next little section, to me, is clear. Verses 21 through 23, we see the denunciation of all that is wrong with their worship gatherings. And then in verse number 24, we see the expectation of what results when true worship occurs in the life of believers. So let's go back to verse 21. He says, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. Amos is shocking his his, his listeners, and he declares that, that the Lord, he, he hated and he despised their worship gatherings. This is strong language. He says, I hate, I reject. Verse number 22, he says, I'll not accept it. He also says, not only will I not accept it, I'm not even going to look at it. Verse 23, take away from me the noise of your songs. I won't even listen to your harps. I mean, what's going on? Why, why is he making this strong declaration? He's saying it because it's all hypocritical. It's all fake. It's not real. It's not genuine. Oh, they're going through the proper motions, but they're doing so with improper lives. Their hearts are wrecked. I mean, he says, look, even their, their assemblies, they're solemn. All right, so it's not this elaborate, over-the-top type of assemblies. Uh, no, they're, they're being solemn and respectful in their gatherings. They're, they're obeying the offerings. They're participating in the festivals. They're making songs and they're singing unto God. They're playing the harps. And the end result of all of it, God's saying, I hate it. I reject it. I want no part of it. I don't even hear what it is that you're offering to me. 
You're going through the motions, and I'm not even going to accept it. I think that still happens today. I think we're guilty of doing it a whole lot in our own lives. Where we gather together in the assembly, we have a solemn experience, we sing songs of praise unto God, playing instruments in the process, but if we're doing all of that with a disconnected heart from the Father, if we're doing all of that with unconfessed and unrepented sin in our lives, I think God hates that worship. I think he despises it. I think the Father would rather us sit down and shut up than stand and lift up empty hands of praise unto him. Because it's all hypocritical. Verse number 24 paints the picture of what true worship entails. He says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Their profession and and their religious activity were both hypocritical. And so therefore, the Lord was not going to accept their offerings, their sacrifices, or their songs of praise. And the reason why is because they, they comprehensively rejected God. They were rejecting God who desired to have a loving relationship with them and for them to have healthy and loving relationships with each other. They're going through the correct motions was, was worse than a, a sham. It was completely repulsive to the Father. And even though they gave generous offerings and, and they made the right type of sacrifices, he didn't want to accept it. He wanted no part of it. What God wants to see in our lives is when the praises that come out of our mouth is matched with an obedient life. That's why he calls us to pursue righteousness and justice. The similar condemnation was directed against their music. Back in verse 23, take away from me the noise of your songs. I'll not even listen to the sound of your harps singing good and, and beautiful and theologically correct songs without having an obedient heart, without having a willingness to confess our sins, without a willingness to repent from sin and, and, and pursue God. If that's what we're going to do, then we're guilty of hypocrisy as well. I want you to notice God's love in all of this. God does not leave them without hope. God does not leave them without an opportunity to correct their hypocrisy. God tells them what type of worship is acceptable unto him. And that's worship that's met with a lifestyle or, or worship that's met with proper action and activity in our lives. So let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Man, I'm telling you, verse number 24 cuts like a scaffold. Verse number 24 paints the picture of what true worship results in. True worship results in action. No matter how much religious activity we're engaged in, if the end result of our assembly 
doesn't result in a greater love and obedience to God? If the end result doesn't result in a greater love and obedience to serve one another? If the end result doesn't produce within us a desire and a commitment to take the message of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world, if it doesn't result in any or all of those things, then our worship gathering was pointless. A profession to know the Lord is not enough to make us acceptable unto Him. Just because you say you know Him, that's not enough to make us acceptable unto Him. Which means we could be in church every time the doors open and still truly not know the Father. You could serve on every type of committee that a Baptist church can throw at you and still never really fully serve the Lord. We can sing songs of praise and adoration time and time again and still not even be heard in heaven. I mean, the list can go on and on, but the bottom line is our walk with God must be authentic, must be genuine. We can't just give him empty praises because those he'll not receive. So a person who sincerely believes, a person who truly trusts in Jesus, a person who properly knows the Father, well, that person will follow the Lord. That person will obey his commands. That person will seek to live righteously, and that person will seek to pursue justice in this world. So is that you? Does that describe who you are? Are you in pursuit of righteousness in your life? Do you seek justice for others? Like, I get it. Like, we're all a work in progress. I'm a work in progress. Here's the news. Like, you've got issues. I've got issues. But, but, But we're to be in the Word of God so that the Word of God can properly train us, can properly educate us, can properly motivate us into becoming who God desires us to be. And so as you look back over the course of your life, there has to be progress in your growth in Christ. Like we're to grow in Christ-like maturity. And some of us are professing that we know God, and you've been making the profession that you know God for 50 years of life, but you're still, if anything, an immature baby. And that ought not be so. There should be growth and maturity that's happening in our lives. And not only should we be able to see, or you personally be able to, to see and to know that growth and experience, but others should be able to see and know it in your life as well. Like, here's the thing. If we confess that we know God, if we confess that we believe in the Lord, and yet we continually walk in disobedience to Him, you know what the Scripture says? that scripture says we're liars 
Some of you might not want to hear this, but I'm going to read it. Remember, I, I read it. He said it. So receive this. 1 John chapter 2. Yeah, go there in your Bibles. 1 John chapter 2. Remember, if we confess to believe in the Lord and we continually walk in disobedience, not if we stumble in disobedience, not if we mess up here or there, but if it's a continual, habitual walk of disobedience, then God's Word says that your confession to, to believe in the Lord is not true. In fact, His Word calls you a liar. First John chapter 2 says, beginning of verse number 3, it says, By this we know that we have come to know Him. And what is the by this? The answer is right there. If we keep his commandments. The one who says I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Verse 6. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Who's the he? Jesus. And so the one who says he abides in Jesus ought to himself walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. So it, 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 we know that we've come to know Jesus if we keep Jesus' commandments. Let's simplify it. What are Jesus' commandments for us? Yeah, okay, thank you. Uh, one, he tells us to go and to make disciples. We're commanded to, to be disciple makers, right? He, he commands us to love God and to love one another. Let's just look at those three. Three commands that are clear from Jesus himself, making disciples, loving God, and loving other people. Those should be driving forces in our lives. Everything that we do as a church should rally behind one of those three things. Like if we're doing something and it's not a part of making disciples, it's not a part of demonstrating our love for God or showing our love for others, then we have no business doing it. It's a distraction. And we ought to eliminate it from the church so that we can zero in on the things that truly matter. And God's children are equipped with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit has gifted you with a particular ministry that God wants you to walk in so that you can do the good works that he created you to do, and the fact that he made those good works possible before the foundation of the world. So as believers, empowered with the Holy Spirit, we're to walk in Christ-like maturity and do the things that he tells us to do. Making disciples, loving God, loving one another. Do you love God? I said last week, and I said the week before, and I'll even say it again today. One of the ways that you demonstrate love for God is loving his word. Because his word, if you know his word, then you know God. You love his word, then it's a love for God. 
you walk in obedience to his word, then you're walking in obedience to God. If you neglect his word, you neglect God. If you deny his word and his teaching, then it's an outright denial of God himself. So how we handle the word is directly reflective on how we handle God himself. So we're to love God. So we should be loving God by loving his word, by studying his word, by applying his word rightly to our hearts and to our lives. We love God and we love each other, which means we're patient with each other. We're kind to one another. We're loving to each other. We're forgiving to one another. But it also means that we love one another enough that we're willing to step into a conversation that many of us would rather avoid. And that type of conversation is saying, hey, listen, you're saying that you believe, you're saying that you're a a follower of Jesus Christ, but I'm seeing this stuff, this junk in your life that doesn't match up with the Word of God. We need to talk. So so loving each other is is more than just encouragement. It also uh, brings about a willingness for accountability. So we're to love God, we're to, to love one another. Lord, to be about the work of making disciples. And here's the thing that the, concerns me the most, especially right now in the season of my life, and, and, and even in the season of this particular church, is when I look at the church as a whole, not just our body, but the universal church, especially the westernized church, I think we have failed miserably in making disciples. I think we're just completely failed at that point. And, and I'm, I'm tired of failing in, in that area. And we're working hard a, as a staff to try to figure out what we can do and how we can do it and how we can educate and inform and help equip us to embrace what God's already called us to do, and that's in making disciples. It, it's an intentional thing that we're to be doing. I mean, really, I should be able to say, take out a piece of paper, write down the name of the person that you're currently discipling in your life right now. And every one of us should be able to write down at least one name. Or perhaps you're being discipled, and that's a beautiful thing. And so instead of writing the name of who you're discipling, you should be able to write down the name of the person that is intentionally discipling you. I'm not going to ask you to do that this morning. Quite frankly, I realize that the end result of that little task would be a whole lot of blank papers today. I want us to fix that. I want us to to change. I want us to become an intentional disciple-making church. And how how do we get there? Well, we need a heart transformation in order for us to get there. We need to start valuing the things that God values. We need to start prioritizing the things that God prioritizes. We need to love the lost. We need to have a deep, compassion towards their current condition. Instead of being so frustrated and so angry and so put off when sinners sin, when we recognize that that is the darkness that they are in, and instead of just being frustrated with their sin, what if God would begin to just mold our hearts with great care and compassion and a willingness to enter into their mess? and to love them enough to share with them the Word of God. 
I'm looking down at my notes and none of that was there. You ever think about is your worship being rejected by God? I almost wanted to, to preach the message first before we got into any singing today. Because I think if we're honest and we look back, then some of us would have to be like, mm, I probably shouldn't have been standing and singing the way that I did. Because really what I need to do right here, right now, is to get right with the Father. And that's what we're going to offer. We're going to give you an opportunity right here, right now, to make sure that you have a proper relationship with God. Like, here's the thing. A, a child of God ought not fear the coming judgment from God. Right? Because our penalty's been paid at the cross. Right? We still give an account, accountability for our lives and what we do with his word and his calling on our lives. We still are accountable to that. But fear of condemnation is removed from us, not because of anything that we do, all because of what Jesus did on our behalf. But right here, right now, I know that there are plenty of people that if you just be honest enough would say, man, I'm struggling. I've got sin. I've got hang-ups. I've got habits that need to be broken. And I just, I'm desperate today for something new in my life. And the hardest time in any worship gathering that we ever do is the time following the message. Because here's what will happen, and here's what's already happened, is we get to the end of the worship through, through the proclamation of his word, and we think that we're done. Okay, I made it through that. It's over. No, and we're just beginning. It's just starting. But we have a condition in us like we have this little checklist in church. Okay, we did a little singing break. We, we said hi to one another. Check. We did that. Oh, more singing. Check. Oh, we did offering. Check. We prayed here. Check. Yeah, message here. Check. Okay, good. Now I can go home. It's like we look at a bulletin like it's some menu or order of, of, of structure of a program and we don't just realize that this is just a small sampling of what we ought to be doing every single day of our lives. I mean, worship unto God isn't restricted to one hour and 15 minutes on a Sunday morning. Proper worship is who we are and how we live our lives. So we have a worship gathering where we come together to worship together, but when you leave here, it's still worship. It doesn't stop. And we move into a time of, of, of intentional time of prayer, and this one everybody gets antsy. This is when we think, well, okay, we've already gone through everything else. I'm not going to miss anything now. If I leave now, I can go get lunch. And so people begin to start checking out. Like, I know, I see you do it every week. Why? What is more important than spending time in prayer unto the King of Kings? You tell me. This is the time where we take the word of God that has been spoken into our lives and we rightly apply that word to our lives and we make whatever decisions are necessary so that when we leave here, we're properly worshiping the Father. And so we're going to camp out in a time of prayer and shame on us for being bored during this process. 
Same on, us, shame on us for not being conditioned to be able to pray longer than 30 seconds or a minute at a time. I know I'm, I'm worked up today. I don't know. But I love you, church. I love this place. I so want to see us all collectively just get the heart of Christ possess that mindset and that mentality and, and love one another serve side by side together in faithfulness if we begin to embrace making disciples among us I can't wait to see what God's going to do over the next 5 to 10 years within this community but it all starts right here it all starts right now as we pray, I invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. We're going to move into a time of prayer. Know that staff and I, we are here at the front. You don't need to come to us in prayer, but we'd love to pray for you or with you if you desire. The altar is open. You're invited to come and to kneel, to make whatever confession you need to. But what is God telling you today? Is there a sin that needs to be confessed? Is there repentance that needs to occur? Is there a commitment that needs to be embraced? What is God asking from you? Heavenly Father, thank you for this day oh God how I love this place thank you for the work that you are doing among us and God we thank you for the work that's still to come we recognize that it won't be easy that there'll be days and seasons of great struggle Father, we know that you are sovereign in and through it all. Help us to trust you. In this call to prayer, Father, on behalf of your people, I ask that your spirit would, would guide and direct us. Help us to make decisions right now that would honor and glorify you pleased by what you see in us all.